Amen. Good evening. How's everyone doing? Uh, my name is Andrew Pack. Many of you guys know me already, but uh, it's a really an honor and privilege to be speaking to you guys tonight. We're right in the middle of a series on Advent, which is all about anticipating the person and the work of Christ. Uh, just as the people of Israel long for Christ to return, or excuse me, for Christ to come, for a Savior to come and deliver them from bondage. Uh, so we, as the church, anticipate Christ coming again to redeem his people, to set all things right. We're also in the middle of the Psalms. We've been working our way through the Psalms, and in this Advent series, we've been going through a series of Psalms to talk about how specifically the Psalms point to Christ and his coming. So tonight, we're actually going to be looking at Psalm 16. Psalm 16. You guys will start turning there if you want. It's an important psalm, both for the Advent and the psalm series. Um, and to kind of get into it, I, I wanted to sort of open up with a question. What is the major symbol of Christianity? What's the major symbol of Christianity that, that people often wear or that people often draw or whatever? We all would probably say the cross, Right? A lot of people, when they see a cross, they associate it with Christianity. But the reality is, is that that's actually, in a way, not actually the major symbol of Christianity. The major symbol of Christianity has actually, is really not the cross, it's actually the empty tomb. That just doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really make a good necklace. Right? It would be kind of awkward to have an empty tomb, I guess, dangling from a chain. But the symbol of Christianity has actually always been the empty tomb. And the reason is because the main redemptive historical event of Christianity, it really isn't the crucifixion. It's actually the resurrection. The focus of the gospel has always been on the resurrection, especially in the early church. As a matter of fact, every time there's an example in the book of Acts of a gospel sermon being preached, whether it's Peter in Acts 2 or Acts 10, whether it's Paul in Acts 13 or Acts 17, the part that they always emphasize isn't necessarily the crucifixion. The part that they emphasize is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, literally and bodily. And the crazy part about all this is that Psalm 16 actually plays a significant role in terms of the Old Testament anticipating Christ's resurrection. In fact, just listen to one of the greatest sermons ever preached, the very first gospel presentation ever by Peter. Let me read it real quick. This is in Acts chapter 2, 22, starting in 22. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read this for you guys. Men of Israel, this is Peter speaking to the crowd that had gathered at Pentecost. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right, right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with 
your presence. Psalm 16 was quoted as a way of pointing the hearers in the first gospel to the fact that the resurrection of Christ was anticipated by David. Over a thousand years ago, David looked forward in hope, according to Peter, and saw and anticipated a day where there would be a descendant who would defeat death, ultimately. How does Psalm 16 bring us to the heart of the resurrection? How is this possible? What is going on here in Psalm 16? Well, in order to see the fullness of this, we actually need to look at it. We need to look at the psalm and we need to see what is going on. So why don't we do that real quick? Let me read Psalm 16. We'll jump into this. Starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised, Lord, in this psalm, a thousand years, Lord, before Christ came crashing into time, space, and history, that there was a day that was being anticipated where he would stand victorious over death where he would reverse the curse of sin. And God, your word is something that you have given to us, Lord, in your grace, that it may encourage us, that it may point us to truth. God, it may point us to Christ and bring us to him. And so, God, I just pray, during this time, God, would you speak through your word? Would you give us an encouragement? Would you show Christ through the scriptures? God, if there's anything that I say that is unhelpful, I pray that it would be quickly forgotten. But Lord, if there's anything that you would be pleased to speak through your word and through me, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would make these scriptures come alive in our hearts. We pray that you would have your way, that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 16 was written by David. But unlike some other psalms, we, we don't really have a reason or a description of why exactly psalm, David wrote this psalm. Uh, there's no inscription as to why. You know, some psalms kind of have an inscription of like, hey, he was on the run and from Abimelech or something, and therefore he sat down and wrote this psalm. But we don't necessarily have that with Psalm 16. But what we can see, if you look at this psalm as a whole, we see that Psalm 16 is actually a progression. 
It starts off in one place and actually ends in totally another. Um, if you kind of survey the psalm really quick, just, just kind of read through it as you're kind of listening. But what, what you'll find is in the first verse of Psalm 16, David is essentially a refugee looking for preservation in the midst of enemies, in the midst of a dire situation. He says, preserve me, O God. In you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There's an aspect of desperation. There's an aspect of him crying out to the Lord. And yet interestingly, when you look at the second, or excuse me, the last verse in this psalm, what you see is that his tone has completely changed. In the last verse, he's received an inheritance. We see that he's overflowing with joy, overflowing with the experience of God's presence. He has total confidence You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David starts off as a refugee, but he ends as someone that is totally secure, totally anchored in God's presence, totally anchored in the inheritance that he's received. And so really, this psalm could be divided into two halves, right? Within this progression, we see in the first half, verses 1 through 6, that David has chosen his loyalty to the Lord in the midst of idolatry. In the midst of those who would run after other gods, we see that David has actually chosen, I'm going to follow the Lord. He's my chosen portion. He's my lot. He's the one in whom I'm trusting. And then what we see in the second half of this psalm, verses 7 through 11, is that the blessings that follow from this loyalty, the blessings that follow from Christ, or excuse me, from David putting his trust in God, is that he is overflowing with joy. If I had to give this sermon a thesis, it's that that those who trust in the Lord completely will receive an inheritance of joy in life in the Lord that is everlasting. So let's start with the first half of this psalm. Look with me quickly in verses one through six. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You know, it's interesting that David starts off this psalm with, an, with a plea, an earnest plea. Right? Lord, I need you to be my refuge. I have no good apart from you. You know, if you spent any amount of time in the Psalms, what you know and what you quickly realize is that verses like this, verses like Psalm 61, are all over the Psalms. I try to get through the Psalms about a few times a year. And one thing I've realized is that David, at one point or another, is always in a state of utter desperation. He's always asking God, You need to be my refuge. You need to be my strength. You need to be my preservation. He's always running to the Lord. He's always crying out to the Lord. Sometimes his enemies are, are in pursuit, are pursuit of him. Sometimes his friends have betrayed him. Sometimes he's being slandered. And what we see when you read the Psalms is that David is constantly crying out to the Lord for strength, for survival, for refuge. And I think that verses like verse 1 are really significant as Christians Because what it shows us is that the Bible is incredibly realistic. The Bible is incredibly true to life. It's honest 
about what a relationship with God actually looks like day to day, moment by moment. You know, there's, there's a lot of people in a lot of churches, and even sometimes some of us in this room, we may be tempted to act at times as if Christianity is actually easy. That to be a Christian is all about having victory, right? You're a Christian, you have victory, and that means if you're a Christian, things can't ever actually get that bad. And if it is getting really bad, then there must be something wrong with you. <laughs> right? And you kind of walk into service, and usually the songs that we sing are very, very happy, and they're very, very, you know, there's no acknowledgement of the hardship of life. There's no acknowledgement of the fact that situations or circumstances could be dire. And sometimes we can, we can often send the message, and we can often receive the message that Christianity is easy, and that it's about having victory constantly. And yet what the scriptures show us, and especially the Psalms, is that anyone who's actually been a Christian for a while knows that true Christianity is not about having victory. It's about having endurance. The glory-bound race is not a sprint. It's a marathon. The fight for faith is not won in a day. It's won over a lifetime of faithfulness, a lifetime of crying out to the Lord, a lifetime of going to the Lord again and again in dependency. I'm a big fan of the movie Rocky. How many of you guys have watched Rocky before? I love Rocky, right? And then there's Creed 2 that came out recently. Even, how many of you guys have seen Rocky? By show of hands. Okay. How, even those of you that haven't seen Rocky, what's the most famous scene in Rocky? Everyone knows what the most famous scene is, right? When he's running up the freedom steps, right? And the music's playing and he, he sprints up the steps and he gets up to the top of the steps and he's jumping up and down, right? And it's like this, this moment of triumph, this moment of, man, like nothing can get Rocky down. But the crazy thing about that scene is a lot of people who, who know about that scene, they don't actually realize why that scene is so significant. And actually... My favorite scene in the movie is what makes that scene so significant, right? When Rocky is running up the steps and, and the music's playing and he's jumping up and down, that's towards the end of his training when he's about to fight Apollo Creed after he's been training for a while. But what a lot of people forget is that there's a scene early in the movie, right, when Apollo Creed decides to fight, or excuse me, Rocky decides to fight Apollo Creed where he gets up early in the morning for the first time. He wakes up at 4.30. The alarm goes off. And he stumbles out of bed. And it's dark and it's cold and the radio is playing in the background. And he can barely find his way to the fridge. He opens up the fridge and he cracks five eggs into a cup. And then he drinks it raw. And the, the egg yolk is drizzling on his sweater. It's just like super gross. But he doesn't even care because he's so tired. And then he goes outside and nobody is up. It's completely dark. It's completely depressing. And he does his little stretches and then he starts running. And you can see that he's tired, and you can see that he's never done this before. And then he gets to the freedom steps the first time. And he's running up the freedom steps, but he's so tired and he's so cold, he can't even make it all the way up the steps. He actually has to stop halfway, and he's got a cramp in his side. And you hear him wheezing as he runs up. And finally, he makes it to the top, and he's so tired when he gets to the top, he can't even celebrate. He just moseys on down the stairs and, and on his way toward home. And it's funny, every time I see that scene, I look at that and I say, yeah, that's what faith is. 
That's what it's like to walk with the Lord. A lot of times. Walking with the Lord isn't rocky at the top of the steps, jumping up and down. Walking with the Lord sometimes is when you're cold and you're tired and life is dreary and yet you endure in hope. A lifetime of faithfulness is not attained by the person who shouts about him on the mountain, but by the person who clings to him within the valley. You guys remember the parable of the four soils? In Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23, there's the shallow, or there's the, the bad soil, there's the rocky soil, which is the shallow soil, there's the thorny soil, the good soil. Right, the bad soil, the word of God goes out, and it, it doesn't take root, and it just dies. It isn't received. And then there's, there's the rocky soil, where the word of, goes out, the word of God goes out, and it's received initially, but when the, 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 the trials of life come, you know, people are like, man, I didn't sign up for this. And they give up. And then there's a thorny soil, right, where it's received initially, but then the distractions and the cares of life come in. We start thinking about money. We start thinking about having a family. We start thinking about all these things above the gospel, and it, it doesn't take root. And then there's the good soil, right, where, where the word of God is planted, and it produces a harvest and produces fruit. Do you know that there's only one way to know which soil is which? Time. It's the soil that lasts and produces fruit over the long haul. That's the soil which is known to be the true soil. There's a story of D.L. Moody. I went to, to Moody Bible Institute and the guy who started at D.L. Moody, he was an evangelist. And one time, I guess, he was coming out of a church and this drunken man came up to him, completely plastered, spewing profanities, sees D.L. Moody, and he goes, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. I got saved at one of your evangelism meetings a year ago. I'm one of your converts. And D.L. Moody looked at him and said, Yes, you are. You're certainly not one of the Lord's. And the point that Moody was making was, you probably received the message that I preached with joy initially. But as soon as life got hard, and as soon as Christianity required sacrifice, you fell away. Time is the only real indicator of faithfulness because time reveals whether or not over the long haul there will be fruit. Matthew 24, 13, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Jesus took the time to say this because he knew that many people would not endure to the end. And yet, the first couple of verses of Psalm 16 show us that God is faithful to supply the strength we need to endure. Growth into Christ is defined by deepening in your understanding of your need for his grace to sustain you. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God is the one who will sustain. 
in which, and that means that tenacity and endurance in faith, the person who lasts is the one who runs to the Lord with all his might and says, apart from you, I can do nothing. And the thing is, is that about people who live and pray that way is that they're inevitably drawn to other people who do the same. Look with me in verse three real quick. It says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You know, one of my favorite things in the world is getting to meet and befriend and talk with older saints. You know, like older people in the church or just older people that that have been Christians for a while who have been walking faithfully with Christ for years and years and years. I love it. I love meeting people who are older who have been walking with Christ for years here at the church. I love meeting people at Berean. I have some coworkers that were like that. And I've, I've met parents and grandparents that are like that. And I love it because it's so encouraging. It's so encouraging to hear about how they've been faithful over the long haul. Because when you meet older saints, you see people that have prayed verses 1 and 2. You see people that have lived it. That have gone through life in the midst of hardships. And have said, preserve me, O Lord. I have no good apart from you. You've seen people who have walked with Christ for decades, and every time you meet an older saint, the way that I kind of imagine it, you're actually meeting this battle-hardened soldier who has been through the ringer. And yet time and time again, they've run to the Lord, they've run to the Lord. And if you could see that person with spiritual eyes, you would see a spiritual giant. Right? They may be an older person wearing funny clothes and dad shoes or whatever, but if you could see them with spiritual eyes, you would say, you would see a warrior. You would see somebody that's been through the ringer. Uh, many of you guys know that we had a, a, some missionaries that uh, came back from Chad recently, right? Alex and Jenna and a couple other people. And I remember we were, I was debriefing with Alex, and he told me this story about how he met this missionary from Chad who had served this one tribe for 40 years. I mean, he was there when no one was there, right? Preaching the word, loving on people. And when I think about that, I'm like, man, there's no way that man would have lasted 40 years unless he was living and praying Psalm 16, 1 and 2. Preserve me, O Lord. I have no good apart from you. Every saint that you, that you meet that have been, has been walking with Christ for decades, like I said, is a battle-hardened soldier. They know what it's like to pray that the Lord will preserve them in dark nights. They've sought his refuge in the midst of storms. They've trusted that he is Lord in hard times. They've come to the end of themselves, and they've seen that they have no good apart from him. And I think that's why David talks about that in verse 3, about the saints being his delight, because he understands, man, these people are in the fight with me. These people are fighting for faithfulness too. And these people who are in the fight with you, these people who are walking and striving to be faithful in grace, as you look at them and as they look at you and as you share your lives with one another, what you actually find is that you become a means of grace to one another. Where you actually encourage one another, keep pressing on, keep going. In contrast... What we see in the following verse, in verse 4, is that there are those who live in opposition to God. Notice what David says next. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. 
Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You know, it's interesting that the one requirement of the person that was appointed to be the king of Israel, besides being a just ruler, was to know the Torah, was to know the law. If you guys look in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, this is what it says about the person whom God said, this is the type of person I'm going to be king. He says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the one requirement of the king, besides not extorting the people and not not being unfair in his role, is the king absolutely has to know the Bible. He has to know the law. And the reason I bring that up is because verse 4 of this psalm could really be seen as a commentary by David on the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. David knew that as the one who was anointed king by God. Invoking the names of Baal or Asheroth or Moloch, all these pagan gods at the time that David ruled, pouring out blood offerings on their altars, they may have seemed like really good ideas, especially in the light of what those gods offered. Because essentially, the cult worship that, that the practitioners did in worship to those gods, they said, if, if you worship Baal, if you worship Asherah, if you worship Moloch, You'll have fertility in the land. You'll have victory in battle. These gods will provide for your needs. You'll have everything that you need. And yet David here is recognizing that there's only one end result to idolatry. Destruction. Sorrows that multiply. Empty promises. Because idolatry, and we know this, never delivers. It always promises more than it can deliver. And it always takes more than you're willing to give. And our idols may look different today, but that still rings true. I mean, many of us often think, if I just had more money, if I just had the right education, then I'll be satisfied. If I just had that relationship, then I'll be satisfied. And what we find is that we keep running to the same things again and again and again. And often we see people running to the same relationship, we see them running to the same problems, the same mistakes, and we look at that and we say, man, why is it that this person just won't get their act together, that they don't see what this is doing to them? And the reason why is because those things are their God. It's because they put all their hope in those things to satisfy the deepest longings of their heart. And every single time, they don't deliver. They leave you feeling wanting. And David, in his commentary on the first commandment, he says, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. But notice the contrast that David gives in verse 5. 
He says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. There may be hundreds of idols. There may be hundreds of false gods with hundreds of promises of joy and fulfillment. But David is essentially saying, no. Give me God. Give me him. He's my chosen portion. He's my chosen lot. He's my chosen cup. I'm content with him. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, I'm not going to lie. I've read this psalm many times. For the longest time, I have no idea what this meant. I had literally no idea. I was like, lines? What lines? What, what the heck are these lines? Right? And I, I kind of talked it up there. I was like, well, that's probably something in the Hebrew. And I just kind of moved on. You know what I mean? Like, whatever. But I, I can't make that mistake or excuse anymore because I went to Moody. So apparently I'm supposed to know something. But what are the lines? Right? What are these lines that he's talking about in verse 6? And after studying it, what I realized and what I read in, in different sources is that I think the best conclusion that we can draw is that David here, he's actually ref- referencing the tribal allotments of the promised land in the second half of the book of Joshua. When you read the book of Joshua after the conquest, many of you guys probably skipped the second half of the book of Joshua because you're like, all that they're saying is like locations and Like, where the boundaries are, this is super boring. You know what I mean? Many of you guys probably skipped it, but you have to understand, okay, to the Jewish people, that was incredibly significant. That was their inheritance. They they studied that portion diligently because they were like, we want to know what lands belong to what tribes because we need to know what our inheritance is. Right, their, 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 their identity, in a sense, was kind of wrapped up in the sense of what are our tribal allotments? What, what land has God given to, us, given to us? But interestingly, there was one group of people that never received a specific portion of land. You guys know who that is? The Levites. Because the Levites were the priests who administered the worship. And what God told them in Joshua 13, 33, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. To which you may think, you may hear that and be like, oh man, that kind of sucks. But it's actually the opposite because the ones who got the ultimate inheritance was the priests because they got God himself. And yet David here is essentially saying that the Lord as his chosen portion and his cup is his inheritance just like the Levites. And yet David is not a Levite. David is of the tribe of Judah. So what's going on here? Why why is David saying this? How can he say this? How can he say the Lord is my inheritance? And then he talks about the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, but he's really saying it's because my inheritance is the Lord. He can say it because, again, David, as the king, knew the Torah. He knew the law. And what he knew was that Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6 said, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me, this is God speaking to the Israelites, a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, God's chosen people from the very beginning were meant to be a kingdom of priests who were set apart to glorify God in the midst of the nations and to intercede for them. And that means that from the very beginning, the ultimate inheritance of Israel was never specific portions of land. The ultimate inheritance of Israel was God. They were meant to be a people of priests whose inheritance was the Lord. God was the ultimate inheritance of the people of Israel from the beginning, and David knew that. That's why he wrote that. And in light of that, that's why verses like 1 Peter 2.9, right on this side of the cross, us as a church, that's why it's so significant. Because it says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, the reality is, is that you and I as Christians, we have a greater priesthood under the new covenant written in Christ's very own blood. We have a greater inheritance. Jesus Christ himself, who has given us himself, who has secured us, he's reconciled us to the Father through all that he is and all that he has done. In other words, the spectacular truth of Christianity is that you and I get God as our inheritance. Just as the inheritance of the people of Israel from the very beginning was meant to be Yahweh himself, our inheritance as Christians, which has been secured by God's very own blood, his son Christ, is that we get to inherit infinite joy in and through Christ. If we have God himself as our inheritance, we can trust that he will also sustain us in attaining that. As a matter of fact, the rest of the psalm, the second half of the psalm, is all about the blessings that come with this inheritance. So the first half of the psalm was all about how David's chosen loyalty to the Lord in the midst of his enemies, in the midst of idolatry. And what we see here in the second half is that the blessings that come with this inheritance. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Let me ask you a question. What does the inner life of God's people look like? What kind of thoughts are supposed to be filling their minds? What kind of truths are supposed to be permeating their hearts? What are they constantly occupying or supposed to be occupying their mind and their energy and their time with? The answer, according to verse 7 and 8 here, they occupy their time and their energy and they fill their minds and the truths that permeate their hearts is the Lord himself and his word. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Notice those phrases there. In the night also, I have set the Lord always before me. These phrases indicate a constant, continual meditation and preoccupation with God. Yet not only with God as a concept, not only with God abstractly, but also with what he has said. Look with me 
In verse 7 and 8, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So David is not just preoccupied with thinking thoughts about God. He's also very preoccupied with thinking about what has God said? What has God spoken? And that's because who God is and what God has said, his word, they're inseparable. That's why there's, it's kind of nonsense when people say, yeah, like I, I can know God, right? I can meditate about him in my garden, wearing my yoga pants, I don't really want to read the Bible. And it's just kind of like, that doesn't make any sense. God and what God has said are inseparable. You can't know God without knowing what he said. You can't know what he said without knowing him. And so the idea that the Bible, the word of God is somehow disposable is actually an affront to knowing God himself. God has actually given us the means by which we may know him because God is a God who speaks in and through his word. You know, a lot of this is reflective of Psalm 1, which I know earlier in, in the series on the Psalms, Psalm 1 can really be, be seen as an introduction to the, book, to the book of Psalms. Let me read it real quick. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, his word, he meditates day and night. Does that sound familiar, what we just read? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Psalm 1 is a picture of what the person who walks with God, the righteous man who walks with God, is supposed to look like. And what do we find when we look there? What we find is that at the very center of the Christian life, is a man or a woman with their Bible open thinking. That's profound. At the very center of the Christian life is a man or a woman with their Bible open thinking about what God has said, meditating on it day and night, occupying his mind and his thoughts and his time with it. Do you want an anchor for your soul in the midst of storms? You have to run to Christ. But where will you find him? And the answer is you find him in his word. You find him in what God has spoken. It's this delight in occupation with God's word which plants him, David, firmly in every circumstance of life. Why? Because he finds in what God has said and instructed and spoken God himself, giving through his word. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You know that phrase, he is at my right hand, in the Hebrew specifically evokes the imagery of one being at your side in the midst of battle or in a courtroom. The idea of someone standing with you, right, in the midst of a fierce battle. Or there's a judge before he trying to condemn you, but there's somebody that's advocating for you. I know that there are many people in here tonight that feel like you're in a battle to be faithful. Those who seek him will find that God fights for his people. 
And there are many people in here just like we heard in a couple of Sundays ago. Or excuse me, this last Sunday. Who are dealing with the condemnation of shame that is produced by sin and produced by circumstances. And what you will find is that those who seek him will find that Christ intercedes for his people. He's beside you. When your conscience condemns you, when you feel condemned by your sin, by your shame, Christ is at your side, interceding for you. He is with you in the fight to be faithful. David understood this, and that's why he overflows with joy at the end of the psalm in verses 9 through 11. Look with me in verse 9. He says, therefore, now every time you see that word, therefore, what does that mean? It means in light of everything that has just been said, right? In light of the fact of David's chosen loyalty to God, in light of the fact that the Lord is his portion, in light of the fact that the Lord is his cup, in light of the fact that the Lord sustains him in the night, that David occupies himself with the Lord, in light of all this, therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David here is overwhelmed with boundless joy in light of his inheritance. His whole orientation to life in light of his inheritance is one of utter confidence is one of utter joy sickness can't destroy it my flesh dwells securely death cannot destroy it you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption in fact his joy and his pleasure according to what David says here apparently it's going to last forever in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore I mean, essentially what David is saying here at the end of the psalm is, I have full confidence, I have full joy, and it's going to last forever into eternity. And that sounds like pretty fantastic news, doesn't it? I mean, who in here doesn't long for a day where there's going to be no more pain, there's going to be no more sickness, there's going to be no more death, where we stand victorious over those things and where joy lasts forever. Is there any person in anywhere that would say, no, that, uh, no, not that appealing, right? Every person longs for that. Every person longs for a joy that's going to last for eternity. But how do we know that Psalm 16 is true? In fact, how can David say these words? Isn't he being a little bit overly optimistic? A little too extreme? A little bit flamboyant in his statements? Because the reality is, is that David wasn't able to obey perfectly. David, at times, did not trust the Lord. David sinned. And he had many regrets and many consequences because of it. And David eventually did die. David couldn't defeat death. His body did see corruption. And every human being who has ever lived has never been able to defeat death. Every human being except for one. 
because a descendant of David, the greater David, actually did. And the fact of the matter is that God spoke to David in 2 Samuel 7 and said, there's going to be one of your descendants that's going to come from your line and I will establish his kingdom forever and it will have no end. And David knew that. And when David spoke of a time where in his presence there would be fullness of joy and at his right hand there would be pleasures forevermore. David in some sense was probably looking forward to the time that one of his descendants would establish a kingdom that would last forever and that that descendant would stand victorious over death and over sin. And Christ did. He actually, Christ actually put his hope in and trusted God fully. He actually walked in perfect obedience to the Father. And Christ suffered and died in our place, but in the end, God didn't abandon his soul to Sheol. In the end, God didn't let him see corruption. In the end, he rose literally and bodily from the grave, victorious over death forever. And that's exactly why Peter says of Psalm 16 in Acts 2, 29 through 32, brothers, I may sit, must say to you with, con- excuse me, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. The incredible truth of the gospel is that by grace through faith, we get to share in the resurrection that Christ has secured and his victory over death. How can we know that Psalm 16 is true? Psalm 16 is true for us because Psalm 16 ultimately and totally was true of Christ. His resurrection is literally living proof of that. Jesus suffered utter humiliation, utter pain, even the fullness of death itself. But he wasn't abandoned. And he wasn't corrupted in the end. And the glorious truth of the message of the gospel is that if he wasn't, then neither will we be. We will also experience resurrection. That's our hope that the same resurrection that Christ experienced will also be ours. That's why Paul proclaimed in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 26. This is a long passage. Oh, man, this is so good. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection isn't true. Man, we're screwed. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to him. Then comes the end where he delivers a kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why can Christians look at Psalm 16 and know and say and affirm that it's true? Because Christ has defeated death in his resurrection. And as we just read, Christ is the first fruits of salvation. And you and I, our inheritance as Christians is that we will inherit exactly the resurrection that he has secured for us. We will experience the same glorious resurrection as Christ in the end. So when David speaks this last line of the psalm, verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We can say it too. Why? You know that that word, in your presence there is fullness of joy, that phrase can can really be sort of understood or translated as like like in, in, in the fullness of your face. Right? Or face to face, there's fullness of joy. Think about that. Now, we all have maybe on some form of social media, right? Like, if you mess with somebody on some social media platform, that's a very, very low form of intimacy, right? We all understand that. Like, if you send somebody a Snapchat, you're like, I probably sent this to like 12 other people, so I'm not that special, right? Very low form of intimacy. And then a step above that, right, is like if you send somebody a text message, it's maybe a little bit more intimate, but it's not like that much more, right? It's just text on a screen. But a step above that is a phone call, right? And you all understand that, like, even though that's a little more intimate, you're not going to be vulnerable with somebody. You're not going to share what's really going on. Well, maybe some of you would, but the idea is that you're not, you're not going to bare your soul. You're not going to be totally known and, and totally expressed to that person over the phone. And a step above a phone call is FaceTime. Right, where you can make, maybe see the person, but you're still separated by the screen. But all of us understand right, that the most intimate, the, the fullest experience of somebody is when you're standing with them face-to-face, one-on-one. It's in that moment that you are experiencing the fullness of that person. Those are the moments where you share your intimate secrets. Those are the moments where you're vulnerable. Those are the moments where you really know that person, that person knows you. And essentially what the psalm is saying is, in your presence, right, face-to-face, there is fullness of joy. In the most intimate experience with the Lord, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And the crazy thing about this, that is, who is the fullest expression of God to us? Who is the one that is at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you and I? Jesus is which means that the fullness of joy that is ours and the pleasures forevermore that is ours is Jesus himself who has given himself to us, who has spent himself to us, who has lavished his grace upon us. 
And when we behold him in the scriptures, when we see him and savor him, our inheritance is joy. We find that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one that's seated at the right hand, interceding for us, whom we get to enjoy forever. And beyond all that, Jesus Christ is coming back. And he's going to make all things new. He's going to eradicate death. He's going to eradicate disease. He's going to set everything anew. And brothers and sisters, the question is, do we actually long for that? Is our joy wrapped up in that? You know, when I was younger, I used to hear people say things like, man, I really want Jesus to come back. And I used to think this myself, right? I really want Jesus to come back, but let me graduate high school first. We're in, a, we're in a season of Advent where we're anticipating. We're supposed to be anticipating Christ's return, right? I, I would say things like, I really want Jesus to come back, but man, let me finish Moody first because I don't want all this hard work to be for nothing. Better make sure I get my bachelor's degree. Some of us probably in this room have said things like, Lord, I really want you to come back, but let me get married first, please. Let me just make it to the altar, Right? Lord Jesus, I really want you to come back, but first, let me have kids. Jesus, I really want you to come back, but first, let me start a family. I really want you to come back, but first, let me get this job. But first, let me travel here. But first, let me do all these things. And essentially what we're saying is, Jesus, I really want you to come back, but I really want these other things more. Jesus, I really want you to come back because you are the fullness of my joy and yet I really have more joy in all these other things. Brothers and sisters, don't cheapen your inheritance by longing for anything other than Christ coming back and us seeing him face to face. And in that moment, knowing that you are fully known and fully loved, and death being eradicated, and disease being eradicated, and God setting all things right, and everything sad coming untrue. Don't cheapen your inheritance. That's ours. Don't cheapen that by settling for something less. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Just as Jesus came, he's coming again. And what a day of joy that's going to be. As joyous as the first advent was, the second advent, when Christ comes again and establishes his kingdom, that will be the day where all the deepest longings of our heart will be fulfilled. And we can be confident that Christ will persevere those who cling to him as we await that day. And we can wait for that day with joy, knowing that he will persevere us to the end. Because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray.